Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today we're going to take a look at the Ukrainian situation, but also at a very interesting book that was written titled Swimming the Volga. Swimming the Volga is a distinctly personal tale written by retired Brigadier General Peter Zwack that begins in 1989 in the waning years of the Cold War, when as a young army captain, he received both a Soviet visa and U.S. approval to study Russian at a regional university in Kalinin. This occurred in Russia over the turbulent 1990s, just before the rise of Vladimir Putin. Brigadier General Peter Zwak, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Thank you for having me, uh, Bill, and uh, good afternoon to your viewers. I appreciate you being with me. Thank you so much. And let's jump right into your very interesting book titled Swimming the Volga. Why did you write that book? And we'll talk about what some of the main thrusts or themes of it were. Well, um, well, here's the cover, just so, so that you see it. it oh, great. Thank there's you. the cover and um, uh, easily, uh, easily um, found on Amazon. And the Volga, as most of you would know, is Russia's Mississippi. It's their, it's their mother of all rivers, and it cuts through this provincial city that I spent unbelievably a summer studying and traveling from in 1989, when it looked like the, the, the Soviet Union was, was, uh, was uh, changing. Nobody imagined that two years ago, would, uh, two years before, it would totally break up in 1991. And, uh, and so I go there um, with, with an American college group uh, to this Russian provincial city, and they'd never seen Americans there before. We were treated as sort of a combination of Martians and rock stars. <laughs> and, and, um, and it was a, a, a uh, incredible summer. I go back eight more times up until um, uh, through the wild West 1990s where Russia is experimenting with democracy and you have this president called Yeltsin who starts off on the right foot, moves from the communists, but is a drunkard as well. And everything starts to fall apart uh, later on. Uh, and then in 1999, 2000, Vladimir Putin uh, comes to power as president of, uh, of Russia. What makes this period so important, I think, for today, and by the way, this book is so about people. It's, it's, it's reach out and touch and talk about people and travels. It's not a big, big political treatise, but trying to paint a human uh, face on the Russians, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So uh, I encourage people say that the book is, uh, is a... Um, an easy read on a complex topic. So, uh, so it sounds like it, yes. Well, uh, this book, uh, what were one or two of your most memorable memories, uh, as we would say? I'm sure you have hundreds. Many, in there. Uh, many. Are there one or two um, that really stand out? 
One was the incredible period when Russian students uh, took some of us Americans. We had a rule in the Soviet Union in there that we had to be in our beds back in our dormitories when we, uh, which was the old, old Russian hotel Volga in there. Uh, we had to be back by whatever nightfall was, you know, or the, so we, a, a group of us, small group went with the, with the Russians and took trains and, and old buses um, over, over 250 miles to this famous battlefield called Borodino which was the big battle where they, they, they fight the French to a standstill in Napoleon. And the Russian students and historians, they look left, they look right out of their backpack. They put up in front of a monument of one of their fallen, the white, blue, and red of Imperial Russia. Now this was in the Soviet Union. So it was, uh, so it was um, um, a little bit naughty, but it was, it was a great moment. And then another moment was just a just a incredible night at a collective farm um, where we were hosted by Russian families and farmers and nothing big political and just in, and, and dancing. And it was a just we got another picture into, if you will, uh, the on the earth, you know, on the ground, um, uh, anywhere, anywhereville. Russia, as you would see in the United States, anywhereville, United States, if you will, good people. Now, I have to say this. Um, I have to say this, that I, I, um, I've been a cold warrior three times in my career, in my life. Once during the period up to, up to the, um, uh, uh, up to the fall of the Soviet Union and the Berlin Wall opening up. Um, I'm a young captain. I'm in a nuclear-capable artillery unit focused on West Germany. And we thought at the end of it that nothing like what's happened in Ukraine could ever happen again. Um, then the second time I became a Cold Warrior uh, was I was our defense attache. Fast forward, I'm pinching myself. When I'm, when I'm in that young officer, in the Soviet Union in 1989, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm ever gonna get promoted to major, all right? I end up getting promoted to Brigadier General 20 years later, and I get sent to Moscow as our defense attache to the Russian Federation. And, uh, and there, I, I'm there from 2012 to 2014, and I'm there for the first invasion of Ukraine and the illegal annexation of Crimea that many of you remember eight years ago. That is the precursor conflict to the horror uh, that is playing out today. But it is, while I call it a horror, it horror, horror it is also very inspiring that what we're seeing uh, with the Ukrainians. So, and that's, and so I consider myself a new age Cold Warrior, but here's the point I need to tell you in all of this, and it comes out in my book. I fundamentally like the Russian people and appreciate their culture. I can't, the regime is monstrous and, and needs to go out with history. Uh, and that is what we're all in an endeavor to support the Ukrainians about. But we've gotta be incredibly careful um, um, in that. So uh, I'm all in 
Uh, I am. I am. Um, I. I. I'm. I'm so appreciative of what the Ukrainians are doing. I'm appreciative of what our nations and allies are doing, and um, uh, I'm. I'm. I just. I want to believe that a lot of those Russian citizens, while they are, some are drinking the Kool-Aid, the propaganda, the deep down as the word gets out about the horrors and the, and the atrocities and the invasion, that they will, um, uh, that, that uh, it's gonna get increasingly uh, more complicated for uh, Vladimir Putin and his regime. And I think we're seeing that now. So there's so much to get into, um, and I want to give it back to you, Bill. But um, but it's it's uh, um, um, so swimming the Volga is my origin story with the Russians. Well, it, you had a unique experience that I'm going to say very few of any people have had, and you had a chance also to get to know the customs, the people, the traditions, and learn the history of Russia. Russia has a rich culture. There's no doubt about that. I was curious, very briefly, how do you see the state of mind of the Russian people from 1989 and what it is today? And of course, a lot of the state of mind is based upon the misinformation, disinformation, outright lies put out by a lot of the media, uh, the Russian government. And we see that happening in our own country to a large degree. But how do you perceive that state of mind, the mental state? I think the, uh, the book captures it there was almost a naive euphoria of that period of 88, 89, 90. Remember the term glasnost, openness, and Paris, right? And all, the dem- uh, and all these democratic things and business, and we're going to get rich, and then you'll have those that we're going to get rich quick. Um, and, um, and so you had, as, as I discussed, uh, you had good, honest people that put their savings into pyramid schemes and lost money. There were two big ruble uh, devaluations. And you had the opportunists that you get in any Wild West. You saw it in the United States in the 20s and the 30s with, with, the, with you know, everything. You, know, you had a gangland thing going on. You had former KGB with access to resources. You had young black marketeers, some who I knew on the street and they were friends. They'd ask if I wanted to trade my shoe. No, but, but, but I knew them. And some of them became um, really uh, successful and won an oligarch. So all of that is going on. Uh, the, uh, the underpinnings of what we call democracy or free-minded nation just never took root there. It wasn't disciplined. Um, uh, and again, I think there was a, uh, an unrealistic expectation. And then the, uh, the, 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 as I said, the opportunists um, were able to grab the industries, buy up things uh, and marginalize, if you will, the, the, the Democrats. And, uh, and then at that point, you have the war in Chechnya, which was a really ugly guerrilla, if you will, fight for the Russians. And then um, uh, the Balkans and relationships with the U.S. and Russia and NATO is beginning to uh, are, are beginning to not to go not bad but but certainly going going down. All of this creates the opportunity for Putin to come into power. Friends, he's been in power for 22 years now. 
And as much as, um, uh, and, and many of us thought, ah, just a KGB Rube, he's gonna be there for four years, five years max, and then somebody else is gonna replace him. But he's there now. Um, for me, in the last couple of weeks in that big parade, for the first time to myself, I said, he looks old. He looks like the last 10 weeks has aged him 10 years. But we'll, I'm going to bill over back to you. Yes, he, he, I noticed that even this morning. He is not moving quickly. He's moving very slowly and deliberately. And it looks as though something is affecting him, be it the weight of the, well, the fact that the Russian army has literally underperformed all the way. And that's, that leads us into Ukraine and to the whole geopolitical situation in that area of the world. So many of our analysts thought that, and myself, I'm not an analyst, but I thought it too, that the Russian army would roll right in and do much better as, than what it has done up to this point. But in any invasion, any type of uh, well, incursion into a country, there are always unexpected surprises. What, what do you think were some of the uh, two or three of the major unexpected events or surprises that hit uh, Vladimir Putin, or that came to our attention also in outside of the uh, that area of the world. Uh, it's a great question, Bill, and I've thought about this a lot. First of all, when when you are in crisis or you are you know leading, um, you need leadership, and Putin. If there's any human being in the world, I believe that he seethes about, he, he rages about, is this young Jewish comedian, Lodyamil Zelinsky, who is out in, in the first four days of the invasion. Everybody thought he was gonna leave uh, Kiev and go to, go the, to Lviv, the second city, and he decides to stay. And he has, uh, he has just a, an army t-shirt. And he is, he is the Ukrainian everyman. Just, he is the anti-Putin. And Putin, this former KGB officer and the president, cannot believe that this man, um, and sometimes history in heaven, drop people into our midst and to do great things and we don't overdo it. And he looked Putin in the eye and said, not here. And that you saw, you saw surprise. We all thought that the Russians were going to be, including me, in the capital city of Kiev in four days and conquer it probably within a week. And he stayed with his team. And if you remember that door, day four or five, he's in his own office getting, and the guy's a media master. And so that's one. Uh, he's sort of been, I call him the Abraham Lincoln, uh, or excuse me, the George Washington of this new 30-year-old Ukraine. So that's one massive surprise, I think, shocked Putin. Um, and that's about leadership. And that's the intangible. And those type of things, whether it is leadership of a country in the military or in your businesses, or it's, it's, it's leadership, motivation, and when you have a motivated nation with a motivated military, even if you are outmanned and outgunned, not hopelessly so, you can do incredible things. And that is what we're seeing. That's the second point. 
Uh, we never imagined. We knew the 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 Ukrainians had moxie, had 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 um, character and toughness, but we did not expect them to rise and stand and fight the way they're doing. I think leadership is a huge part of. We had been training them for a number of years, the U.S. and our our European allies, uh, and they and they'd been in a war already for eight years. But another thing that was surprising to many of us, and I've looked at the Russian military a lot, being a, been among them and invited to their exercises in occasion. We didn't expect them to melt down in places the way they did. And the way the Russians melted down, if you haven't looked into it, you know, just, just uh, Google Kiev, Russian retreat. The Russians look like they're gonna take it. And the Ukrainians just stand fast, start chipping away at them. Young Russian um, um, boys of, of, of 18, 19 are thrown in there. Draftees have no idea what they're doing because it's not an open society and they've been lied to. And they start uh, dying in large amounts and, and getting hit and their tanks are getting blown up and our supply lines um, gets better and better and better with all this um, new equipment. And the Russian military that we thought had done okay in 2014, okay uh, in Syria, yeah, they did, but these were small operations in comparison. Uh, and you're dealing with this vast area. Friends, Ukraine is the size of Texas. Um, and, and so then you have the fight that's going on right now and the Ukrainians have been battered and bloodied, but they're in it. They've got, they're, they're, they're fighting, they're fighting hard. Russians are too, but they're not into it. They're trying to do it with firepower. The tragedy is the longer this thing goes, the more people are gonna die and, and, and including uh, a lot of Ukrainians. And it is incredibly dangerous what's going on because if things were to go really, really off base and there's anything about war that we all know is expect the un un uh, unpredictable. Uh, and and um, when the passion and furies and anger and resentment overcome rational linear thought, meaning we wonder what's going on in Putin's head and in the Kremlin, that could lead to a dangerous, uh, dangerous pathway uh, for all the reasons you know. They have, you know, civilization ending nuclear weapons and so do we. They certainly have. And the, well, President Zelensky has certainly risen to the occasion. The resiliency of the Ukrainian people is just incredible. And the Russian war machine just totally has not fallen apart completely, but it's certainly been weakened and has underperformed. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or perhaps an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, or you just have a computer, you like our shows, and you'd like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at Ukraine and also a flashback 
to the former Soviet Union and to current Russia today. And we're talking with a very interesting foreign policy expert, retired Brigadier General Peter Zwak, who is also the author of Swimming the Vulgar, Volga. Uh, General Zwak, we're just about out of time and I can't believe we're getting so far along. Uh, we were talking about unexpected surprises. And one that has really popped up recently, of course, we heard about it a few days ago, and by the time this show airs, there may be a resolution to it, is the fact now that Finland and Sweden are seriously looking at joining NATO. That would just about encircle Russia to a large degree if that happens. Uh, very briefly, do you think that they will do it? And is that a good idea? Should they both yeah. join or one join and not the other, whatever? Yeah. Um um, I encourage your viewers to look at a map, uh, and many of you already know the geography, but just look at a map of where Finland and Sweden are. Um, these are peaceful nations, but they fiercely depend, uh, defend their um, independence. They've been fiercely neutral, but I think they're watching the world and the tea leaves, and it's going into a autocrat. They've just watched the Finns their their neighbor and they've had major wars with them in the past it's been uh, been quiet the last 70 years though the russians try to you know bear influence on them but um they've just watched their big neighbor do an invasion of a peaceful european nation of the type that hasn't been seen in greater europe since the nazi soviet hitler stalin invasion of poland in 1939. And I think that there's something in, and I was just there a couple of years ago and they were back and forth on NATO and all of that. But when you're sitting there and you're watching this aggression and you're wondering, could it be us next? And uh, so we, we're neutral, but is this now a fairly useless neutral? Uh, let's, let's, we don't wanna fight Russia, but we wanna be part of a defensive alliance that will come and defend us which is what NATO is all about. I emphasize NATO is a defensive alliance. Now the Russians are squawking about it. Uh, but but I'll, I'll, I'll stop on this one. Russians brought this on themselves. They wouldn't have the, the Swedes and the Pol and, and the Finns would not have done this, except they've watched aghast, just in amazement and horror, this, this massive country try to crush an independent nation through their south. Last point, you look at the geography. Um, while they don't border the Arctic, they're up there, but what they do border very heavily is the Baltic Sea. And if they come in, they will really, really make the Baltic countries in NATO feel more comfortable. Uh, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, who feel a little bit exposed. The second city of Russia, St. Petersburg, is, is about 100 miles away from the capital of Finland, Helsinki. So there's a lot of history, and there was a really tough war between the 39-4. Bottom line, the Russians brought, them, brought this on themselves. Nobody wants to go attack Russia. This is a defensive move. We'll see what happens. It is rather amazing. It certainly is, and they did bring it on themselves, regardless of what some of the motivations may have been earlier. Well, General, we're just about out of time. In the last 30 seconds we have, what can we do to help the Ukrainians? What can we do to bring it together? Where the UN is, well, the UN's on the ground in Ukraine. There are five or six UN agencies that I know of 
right off the bat from the World Food Program to yeah. UNICEF and different ones like that. Even the Security Council came up, which has been paralyzed, by the way, came up with a resolution and Russia signed on to it to encourage a peaceful resolution of this conflict. So there at least is a door open for diplomacy. But again, in the last 30 seconds, what can we do differently to help bring peace and stability to that area? Well, I think that um, I think we have to stand, continue to stand up uh, to the Russians. Look, in a perfect world, the Russians sorted out internally. They got major internal issues this is going to do. And you get a situation back like the early 90s where there was sort of a reset, uh, bad word, uh, a sort of a restart where the Russians maybe can take another hack at maybe their version of what a free nation is, because it's not. Um, um, the, but but um, the West, not just the US, the West and increasingly the free-minded nations of the world to include Japan and Australia and other countries have pulled together. We need to stick together through thick and thin. It's going to be hard economically for a lot of you that are listening to this broadcast, uh, gas and all that, but considering the alternative, um, um, we've got to stick with this. Um, we need to stay the course because this will ripple out whatever happens with Russia or does not, will also impact what goes on uh, in Asia to include how China sees the world and Western international free-minded resolve. It certainly does. And we have to stay involved because what happens in these other parts of the world will affect us. And we're starting to see it more and more each day. But Brigadier General Peter Zwack, I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. God, God bless you all. All right. God bless our great nation and, uh, and uh, God bless uh, the, the Ukrainians. Thank you so much. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.